Well, good morning and welcome to a continuation of our series on Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, to Ephesians. Let's see how he opens his letter and let's read some verses from chapter 1 and we'll begin at verse 3. Chapter 1 and verse 3. And Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And just for uh, three verses in the next chapter, <clears throat> chapter 2, down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <clears throat> now, last week, David showed us how strategic the city of Ephesus was in the New Testament. And that overview was a prelude to our study of Paul's letter to that same church in Ephesus. We'll be covering the entire letter in three chunks or three blocks over the next two years. So perhaps just before we start our study this morning of the first part, perhaps I could uh, explain why these three parts of the letter, uh, what they are and why we've divided it up in this way. We're not saying this is the only way of dividing it up. We're not even saying it's the right way. <clears throat> but at least if I can try to explain the logic of the division so that you'll understand it over the course of the next couple of years. So in the, three, in the passages we read, <clears throat> I hope you noticed uh, the highlighting of the references to things which God has planned. Now, some people don't plan. They do things spontaneously just because they feel like it, and often it's doing good things. Now, maybe you're that sort of person, and that enriches our society. But God's not actually like that. God plans everything in advance. And he always does things for a reason, not just because he feels like it. So we read, for example, twice about the purpose of his will. We read about a plan for the fullness of time. And at the end then of, the, of our reading in chapter two, it talks even about 
good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this whole section of the opening of Ephesians, uh, from the first verse up to chapter 2, verse 10, it talks about God's planning, what he has planned, his objectives, his purposes. Uh, and that's what that first section is about. But in chapter 2, verse 11, there's an abrupt change of tone and of theme. Because here, Paul is explaining how Christ has achieved something remarkable. He has created a united body from two diametrically opposed types of people. The new body that he has created is called the church. And he, in, when Paul is writing, he takes two extremes, Jews and Gentiles, and talks about how God has created a unity from two groups that are impossible to reconcile, humanly speaking. He calls that uh, his body or, or this community a new man. At least that's what he called it before the days of political correctness. So let's call uh, this second uh, section the new humanity. But again, he, he uses that phrase, a new man, in the sense of a human race. But this is almost like a new race, a new community of people uh, who have been created in Christ. And God, uh, Paul explains God's strategy for creating this new community and how he has achieved the impossible in uniting such diverse groups in one body called the church. It's going to be a very practical section. And so that second section deals with what we would call God's new creation at the corporate level, at the whole community level, at the church worldwide. And this section will raise all sorts of practical issues about how a church made up of very diverse people can nevertheless be united and function as one body. It's a real challenge in our world today. It can be a real challenge in our own church. But this second section is, takes us up to halfway through chapter 4, and we'll be covering that in the first part of next year. And in the remainder of the, the letter, the last two and a half chapters, Paul again talks about a new man, uh, but this time in the sense of an individual. He talks about a different type of new man which God has created, this time at the individual level. So we could call this a new person or a new type of person. And this new type of person says, speaking of Christians, will be just like Christ. Uh, and if this world looks at how we live in practice and the difference that Christ makes in our lives, then this world will see something of Christ himself. And this third and final section of the letter will again have some very practical uh, challenges for us if we want to live as the new type of person that God has created. So we plan to cover that probably towards the end of 2024. So we'll be looking at these three parts of Ephesians in three series then. God's plans and his purposes for now and for the future, a new humanity and a new person. So with that brief outline of the letter, let's now get into the text of how Paul begins his letter to the church at Ephesus. Well, just before we get into the text, I have two questions that I would like you to ponder 
just into yourself. Don't call out your answer, but just think about this. The first question is, what is the significance of your life? It's not an easy question, but when you think of all the billions of people in this world, what, why is your life significant? Would it make any difference if you had never lived? After we're dead and gone, life here on earth will carry on. Will your life be significant 100 years after you've gone? If you're a Christian, you maybe feel your life should be significant, but in practice, many Christians live without really knowing why their lives are significant. So take a few moments just to ponder that quietly to yourself. Perhaps you're even wondering, does my life have any significance? Maybe you're thinking of the family that you'll leave behind, people who would not have had their life if you had not lived, and that's certainly uh, very valuable and significant. But then you have to ask, well, do their lives have any significance? So could you try to sum up the main way in which you think your life is significant, perhaps in one sentence. Try to remember that sentence, because I'm going to ask you uh, a second question, and I don't want you to, for to forget the answer, your answer to the first one. And the second question is rather different. Have you ever gone out on a clear night, looked up at the stars, perhaps out in the countryside where there's no light pollution, and the longer you look, the more stars and galaxies that you see. And has the thought ever come to your mind, and even as you look at the world around us and its beauty and all its trouble, and the thought comes to your mind, what is it all for? Why did God create the universe in the first place? If you don't believe there is a God, well, let me rephrase the question like this. If there is a God who created the universe, why did he bother creating it? Now, just think about the, your answer to those two questions. I appreciate that those questions cannot be answered in a few moments, uh, especially on a November morning. But now, I'd like you to compare your two answers if you can remember them, that is. But is there any connection between why you think your life is significant and why God created the universe? It might be strange to consider the possibility that there's a connection between why God created the universe and the significance of your life. As I mentioned, God always does things for a reason. God did not create the universe and says, well, that's very good. What will I do with it? What will I do now? When he created this unique planet and then he created humanity, he did not say, well, those are interesting creatures. I wonder what I could get them to do uh, while they're on planet Earth. God created this universe, this planet, and the human race with a particular destiny in mind, a particular purpose. And it's this destiny which gives the life of believers in Christ huge significance. And so Paul opens his letter to the Christians in Ephesus to make exactly this point. 
He says that before God created the universe, he had a grand plan for a new, new type of humanity. He speaks about a grand destiny which God had already predetermined before anyone uh, was created. Predetermined for anyone who trusts Christ. And Paul said that God had two specific purposes or objectives for everyone who is in Christ. And these are the two uh, specific purposes in verses 4 and 5. He says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Saying something of the type of this new people that he's going to create. And he says then, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, just before we get into looking at those two purposes, please don't get excited or agitated about these references to predestination. Next week, Stevie Rogers will be looking at that subject. So for now, just let me highlight what the text says about this, or rather, what it doesn't say. It does not say he chose us before the creation of the world. Now, just if you focus your eyes a bit more carefully in the text, I hope you'll agree that he does not say that he chose us before the creation of the world, or the foundation of the world. That's, if Paul had meant that, uh, he would have said that. So God does not have a list of individuals whom he has decided can be saved. He didn't define that list before the creation of the world. He does, Paul does say that he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before the foundation of the world, God chose Christ to be the one in whom all his plans for the future centered. And God has a magnificent destiny for Christ. But as well as that, he said, I am going to offer that same destiny to anyone who trusts Christ, anyone who will be in Christ. Now, the destiny, the future destination, has been predetermined. That's what it means by predestination. The destination is predetermined for anyone who is in Christ. And as we'll read next week in verse 13, a person is included in Christ when they believe. They were not included in Christ before the creation of the world. They were included in Christ, Paul says, when they trusted Christ, when they became a Christian. And at that point, their destiny, their destination is guaranteed. So what, God, what did God predetermine before the creation or the foundation of the world? Firstly, the future destiny for anyone who would be included in Christ. That's what he predetermined. And secondly, he predetermined the criterion for being included in Christ. And the only criterion is having faith in Christ. God decided those two things before the foundation of the world. He did not predetermine the individuals who would be able to put their faith in Christ. The offer is made to everyone. So what is this future 
destiny which God has planned for those who were included in Christ. We've seen in these verses that there are two uh, key objectives in the mind of God. I want to take them in reverse order. First of all, he uses this phrase, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Now, what's involved in that statement that we are adopted as sons? It goes far beyond merely being forgiven for all our sins. Fantastic though that is. It goes beyond the promise of being in heaven, which many people would be very glad of. But it's more than that. Being adoption, being adopted has a very specific meaning. Adoption in the Roman world was a common way of giving someone the full rights of inheritance of being a son. You probably heard of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he then uh, was destined for ruling as, uh, over the Roman Empire. And more importantly, throughout the Old Testament, being a son is much more than being, merely being a male child. It is much more to do with being an heir to the family business, to uh, being guaranteed the inheritance. So when God decided that believers in Christ would be adopted as sons, his plan is to hand over the future ruling of the world to come and all his plans for the future to his son, Jesus Christ, but to anyone who is in Christ. That's our destiny as Christians. Our future destiny will not be playing harps and singing hymns all the time, thankfully. It will involve ruling in love, managing a new creation, and ruling the way Christ rules. David has last week reminded us that Ephesus was the center of the worship of Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. The temple to Diana was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was overpowering. It dominated the religious life of the Ephesians. And it also gave the citizens of Ephesus a sense of identity, a sense of prestige, and a sense of importance, a sense that they were significant and had been selected by Diana by allowing her idol to fall from heaven to the city of Ephesus. Now imagine a Christian convert living in that society and in that city. They stop going to that great temple. They are no longer associated with what gave their fellow citizens a sense of identity and a sense of significance. They're no longer proud of being chosen by Diana, whose idol supposedly fell from heaven. And now as a member of a comparatively small and weak community of Christians, they would, humanly speaking, have felt very small and insignificant compared to those who were part of the established religious system and the state uh, of Ephesus. But to that Christian minority, who probably questioned the significance of their new identity in Christ, Paul is revealing something magnificent to them. He says, you are the reason God created the universe. 
God created the universe to produce sons of God, and you are sons of God if you are in Christ. God wanted to produce those who could share the inheritance of his son, Jesus Christ, and to do that, God planned this universe. He designed this planet, he created humanity, and he sent his son into this world to invite people to join him, to put their faith in him, and through that to become part of the great destiny God has planned, and he planned it even before he created the universe. So you are not insignificant. Your church may seem small and unimpressive to the people of Ephesus, but in God's eyes, the church is the whole reason for the universe. You may feel you lack a sense of identity and a sense of importance in the eyes of your society. But if you are in Christ, you are part of the most important and significant thing in the universe. So hold your head up high. Don't think that you're insignificant. There are many churches, small churches across our world that need that same message. They do not worship the established religion they were brought up in. They do not worship, in, like in some countries where there may be atheistic uh, regimes, they do not worship the state or the controlling party. And they can be excluded from society, they can be persecuted. They do not subscribe to the glorying of the powerful state. Even in some schools, uh, a Christian may be the only Christian in the school. And small churches in persecuted places around the world are often demeaned and written off as being utterly irrelevant and insignificant. They're made to feel sometimes like a weird sect with no credibility. And to believers in that environment, what an encouragement it is to read in Ephesians that far from being insignificant, they are the whole reason God created the universe. So if you are a Christian then, do not let this world persuade you that you are part of a weird minority which will eventually die out. We have been adopted as God's sons and our destiny will be with Christ to govern the world to come. So that is the first destiny, if you like, that God planned before he even created the world. The second uh, objective, which was in the previous verse, says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, sometimes we feel that can be an unrealistic objective. But when God decided that all those who believed in Christ would be adopted as his sons, he also decided something which comes as part of the package. He planned that we should share his family likeness, that we should be and should live like Christ. If we are acknowledged as sons of God, then part of God's plan is that we must become like Christ in our character and in our lifestyle. Now, his plan is that we will be able to stand before God holy and blameless. And already we have that status. We have been set apart by God. We are holy. 
we are blameless because Christ has taken the blame for that. It doesn't mean that we are sinlessly perfect now, but God's plans and his resources are being committed to changing our character, to transforming our lifestyle, to send out a message to this world and to even the principalities and powers that we are like Christ. And that's why he ends this first section in chapter 2, as we've read, about God's plans uh, for the future. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice, again, this very significant part of God's pre-planning about us doing good works. When the Lord Jesus walked this earth, it was described like this, he went about doing good. He brought light and understanding to people who lived in darkness and fear and superstition. He brought love and kindness to people who lived in a very aggressive and selfish society. He brought hope to people who were in despair. And God loved to see that, loved to see the embodiment of goodness walking this earth. And his plans for us include the fact that we should do good works. We do not have to think up those good, good works, those opportunities. God has prepared those as well. And it's so that people will see something of Christ in us. God has prepared those. We just need to walk in them. And that puts your life in work or university or at home in a new light. Your situation may be difficult and frustrating, but think of that as a starting point, as an opportunity, as a situation that God has prepared so that you can do what Christ would have done in those difficult circumstances. Christ had a difficult home life. He lived in a difficult society that was very antagonistic to him. And through God's planning, there will be opportunities in your life to show the love and kindness of God, to bring understanding to people, to show forgiveness to them, to do good things that God has prepared. Sadly, speaking particularly for myself, many of us have been blind to opportunities that come across uh, our life. Think times and situations that God has prepared where we could do good, where we could say something helpful, and it's just by, we've just walked past it. Perhaps because it's in the morning, we're not alert. Perhaps because we're so focused on our own problems that we never consider that other people might have problems too. Perhaps we're annoyed by someone's behavior, but we don't realize that that same person could be acting the way they've done because they've been damaged and perhaps hurt by other people. And they need someone to deal with them the way Christ would have done. That is part of God's plan and he is working and has prepared things for us to do. Now, some of you more theologically minded uh, may be inclined to be a little agitated or concerned at this point at my emphasis on good works. 
and you may become uneasy with that. And that's understandable because many religions across the world encourage us to do good works as a way of getting to heaven. And Paul is aware of that danger as he writes about God's purpose for us to do God's, God's work. And that's why he immediately precedes these two verses, sorry, this verse, with two more that are perhaps better known. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we'll be hearing in a few weeks' time uh, that we are not saved by good works, but um, we'll be hearing how we are saved. But sometimes the fear of misunderstanding uh, the role of good works blinds us to the fact that it was part of God's predetermined plan that we should walk along a path of good works that he has prepared for us to do. The important doctrine of salvation by faith alone, it is crucial, but it's not the whole point of what Paul is saying uh, as he ends this first section of Ephesians. The important doc, uh, point is the purpose of us living good works like Christ, holy and blameless. So the doctrine itself of salvation by faith is not his primary objective. It is a safeguard against misunderstanding his point, but his primary objective is to let us know that part of God's plan for us is that we should live in a way that reminds people of Christ. And God has been busy, busy preparing opportunities for that. And in that sense, doctrine is only a means to an end in the Christian life. The real end that God has in view is how we live like Christ. So as we listen carefully to these opening verses of Ephesians, I hope it encourages you to realize that if you're a Christian, your life has immense eternal significance. You're part of the reason God created the universe. And your life, your day-to-day -day life and your lifestyle is also hugely significant. It matters how you live. It matters in a good way. Because God has been preparing circumstances in your life where you can show that not only have you the status of being a son, a son of God, but you can demonstrate in your life that same family likeness of living more like Christ. And I pray that God's word will encourage us to see our lives in that light. Let's just uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are sometimes very conscious of our own failings. We sometimes feel that we've missed so many opportunities in life that we have no particular significance. And yet you've encouraged us to stand up, to realize the dignity that we have because we are children of God. We are sons of God with not only status, but with a future hope and destiny. But also, we thank you for encouraging us by reminding us that our day-to-day -day lives and our life this week has real significance. You have planned things for us to do in this incoming week. We pray that we would be alert enough 
and unselfish enough not to miss those opportunities. And we pray that through that, others might see something of the Lord Jesus through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.